Oh, good morning. It's good to see you all. Uh, welcome. Did anyone stay up late for the football game? Oh, yeah. I did a little, but not too late. Actually, I woke up about 1.30 in the morning, and uh, we had a little kid who was uh, two years old making some, uh, well, some bad noises from his room in terms of sickness. And we went in to take care of him, and I said, ah, man, I wonder what happened with the football game. And it was still going. <laughs> Couldn't believe it. But, oh well, we're here. And uh, we're back in Acts, Acts 11, if you want to take out your copy of God's Word. Acts 11, it'll also be on the screen behind me. I was reflecting this week and, and thinking about, I was about 15 years old, um, and probably for moments like this, I was probably thinking of, it's time for me to tie my own tie. And I didn't have a dad around to sort of show me how to do it. And I had a, a couple of ties in my closet that someone had tied for me in the past, and I had just never loosened them far enough to really need to tie them again. But I realized it's time. I had a new one. I got to figure this out. Um, and I realized quickly there are many different ways to learn how to tie a tie. All of them are frustrating. The, the first one I, I tried, and I remember doing this, I just tied a normal knot, just an overhand knot, like I'd tie my shoe. That did not work by the way, if you don't know. Now, now, the internet was around at this point, but it wasn't that helpful. There was not, YouTube, I don't think, was around. I remember, I don't even think Google. I remember looking, it was probably Yahoo search or something like that. The best thing I found was a written description. A written description of how to tie a tie. So unhelpful, so unhelpful. Take this end, put it over this, under that. You can't, I needed a picture. I needed, I didn't need a theory. I didn't need a description. I needed to watch someone do it, study them, let them instruct me, learn how to do it. And uh, in, in so many ways, the Bible teaches us in many different ways. And today, what I think we have before us is in addition to being sort of a historical record of what God was doing in the church in Acts, especially in bringing non-Jewish people or Gentile people into the faith, it's also giving us a bit of a case study in what it looks like for a church to be built up. How a church in a certain place, at a certain time, crossed the threshold of non-ignorability in its community, could not be written off anymore, had to be noticed, had to earn a distinct identity and a distinct name. How a few burning embers that were scattered from Jerusalem became a raging fire in the city of Antioch. That's what we want to be too, isn't it? So, uh, a couple of points for context. Last week, Pastor Mark Excellent job, brother, to preach a great sermon on just an unfair amount of the Bible that we, he was asked to preach, chapter 10 through 11, 18, um, and just a great job. Every week, I'm, I'm hearing from you guys uh, how much you're learning from Pastor Mark, and it's been fun to, so it feels like each Monday, I have what we call gospel gossip. It, you know, gossip is where you say something mean about someone behind their back. We do gospel gossip, which is where you say something nice about someone to their face. Uh, so I've been gathering all these, you guys are learning a lot from Mark, and I get to pass them on to him, so... That's a credit to him, excellently done, doing a great job, and a uh, credit to you guys. So continue to encourage Mark um, and what great job that he's doing. So well done, brother. Um, the whole theme of last week's passage that Mark did so well with was that God was opening the door for these non-Jewish people to come into God's family. And I'll, I'll just read uh, from verse 17, and that'll lead us right into our passage today. So chapter 11, verse 17 begins this way. And this, by the way, this is uh, P the Apostle Peter who had had this experience with Cornelius um, and the vision and all that. Uh, and he's addressing this now to the church in Jerusalem. He says this, If then God gave the same gift to them, that is the Gentiles, as he gave to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could stand in God's way? 
When they heard these things, they fell silent. And they glorified God, saying, Then to the Gentiles also God has granted repentance that leads to life. And now here begins our passage for today. Now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists also, preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. The report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad, and he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. For he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith, and a great many people were added to the Lord. So Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul, and when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. For a whole year they met with the church and taught a great many people. And in Antioch the disciples were first called Christians." Now in these days, prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch, and one of them named Agabus stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine over all the world. And this took place in the days of Claudius. So the disciples determined, everyone according to his ability, to send relief to the brothers living in Judea. And they did so, sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. This is God's word for us today. And I believe what God has to say to us from this passage, the big idea why I want you to take home and not forget it all, is that we must embrace God's power to make whole disciples. Embrace God's power to make whole disciples. This passage is going to be sort of our case study, and we're going to work backwards, sort of up the assembly line, if you will. First, sort of admiring the product of God's mission, the product, then seeing the people that God uses in his mission, and finally considering the power of God that God gives. So the product of God's mission, the power, or sorry, the people God uses, and then the power God gives. But first, let's, uh, let's just dedicate this time to the Lord. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we are weak and needy, but as we just sang, you are strong in power. You are mighty to save. Please be with us today as we open your word. Illuminate our eyes. Show us Christ. Help us to focus. Help us to learn from you. You are our great teacher. Help me to say things that are helpful and to throw out things that aren't. Most of all, help us to become well-formed, deeply devoted disciples of Christ who glorify you. Amen. Well, the first thing that we'll do in our case study is look at the product of God's mission. Uh, I want to point out a couple of things. The first thing you'll see is in verse 23. I'll direct you there. Look there. When he came, that is when Barnabas came, he's dispatched by the church in Jerusalem, which was sort of the main place where this movement was set up. They dispatch Barnabas to go to Antioch and check out what's happening. He came and saw the grace of God. He was glad. I'll stop there. What does that mean? (laughs) He saw the grace of God. He saw it. Grace is not, it's not a substance. It's not a a thing you can touch or hold. It's not a fabric. It's not something you can possess. And yet Barnabas saw it. What is Luke trying to communicate to us here? The fact is, this is what we see again and again, is that when God's grace breaks into human reality, it doesn't just result in something as mundane as people signing a different doctrine of belief. 
something saying, I used to be this and now I am this. I've signed a different sheet of paper. Rather, as this passage makes clear, there is a visible manifestation that becomes evident that the grace of God has resulted in new, beautified humanity. What broke out in Antioch was God remaking and restoring the brokenness of that city, and apparently it was such a sight to behold that Barnabas became glad because he saw it. Now, you have seen this too. I hope you've seen this, and in every local church that's really faithful to God and faithful to his word, there's evidence of God's grace all over the place. Last week, we got to see it in front of all of us. We saw Aminik over here sharing the story about how God met him on a lonely highway and, and just broke his heart open and flooded it with new life in Christ. He said, I've got to stop with this and I've got to go on to this. And I, I can't help but see stories like this and reflect on myself and so many of you as I've seen your lives changed by the gospel of Christ as, as new life has flooded into your hearts. And I can't help but think not just of that, of, but of the ripple effects of the outbreak of God's grace when someone comes into Christ, comes to trust Christ, families and friends and, and the, the, the grace that just seems to extend and extend generations of newness of life that result from one person coming to faith. God's grace was seen. In the church in Antioch, so many were added to the Lord that Barnabas, he said, I'm not able to keep up with the teaching. That's, we'll get to Barnabas in a second, but isn't it wonderful that the first thing he does is he says, I'm not up to this task, and he go get Saul, who apparently uh, could help out with that. Um, in verse 26, uh, Luke adds this curious little note about this, another thing we can see about the product of God's mission, what it produces. In verse 26, it says this, um, so he finds Saul, he, and, and then at the very end of verse 26, we see that final sentence, and in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. Luke, you can see in the way that Luke shares that detail that it's not as if they're saying the church called itself Christians, as you know, we call ourselves Parkview, <laughs> not like that. It's very hard to give yourself a nickname. I don't know if you've tried it. Uh, track star Tommy, it did not work for me. I don't know what, I don't know what your idea ever was, but it just doesn't work. Um, they were given a nickname. They were called Christians. Called by whom? Called by the people of Antioch, apparently. Now, how does that happen? How did they gain a, a distinct group identity, a, especially a group that seemed, as, as we study history, was so strange, so, such a weird group uh, compared to the society that was around them? How, how did it come to happen? Now, of course, we see in the story that it was a very large church, and so you might say, well, it's just there were so many of them, they decided they had to do that. Um, but there, there are other large groups that don't earn a nickname. I mean, the University Hospital employs 11,000 people, many of you. Uh, that's a lot of people. We don't call you all hospies or something. I don't know. That's not how nicknames are earned. Uh, they earned this nickname apparently because their community was so distinctive and different from anything that existed in that time. Their way of living and relating to one another in their environment was so distinct that to understand who that person was, you had to understand that, ah, it's one of those. Now, the product of mission is not just changing individual lives, although, yes and amen, let's celebrate as many of those as possible. It's also a changed community. We believe a beautiful gospel doctrine that God himself has not abandoned us in sin, but in the person of Christ has written himself into the story of history across a, across a Roman cross and died the one perfect man came and died for all of us imperfect people so that we can have new life with God forever starting now. 
That's gorgeous. No, no one could make that up. We need a Bible to remind us that we didn't make that up because it's so incredible, so beautiful. And one of the products of God's mission that we see in the church in Antioch is that that beautiful doctrine created a beautiful community, created a beautiful culture, a new way of relating to one another. I can't help but think of that as I, as I read that note at that Luke includes there at the end, 27 through 30, about the, the significant contribution that was gathered uh, from among them. And the thing that hit me, actually, just as I was reading this passage a few minutes ago, in verse 28, it says, um, Agabus stu- you know, stood up and foretold by the Spirit there would be a great famine over all the world. And Luke says, now that took place in the days of Claudius. He wants us to know that really happened, okay? Prophecy was right. And, but do you notice, it's a famine that would happen all over the world. It's not a famine that just happened in Judea. A great famine that happened all over the world. Uh, on first reading, I thought, oh, there was a famine going to happen in Judea, so they said, let's gather some stuff for the Judeans because we'll have plenty here. No. It's a famine that's happening to them too. And they knew, in fact, because they were, they were Greek-speaking and, and tended to be more wealthy than... And do you notice then, at, toward the end, in verse 29, it says, each one according to his ability. This wasn't a planned capital campaign. Let's all rally. It was an individual. Everyone took heart. There, do you notice how whole of a disciple they were becoming, how well-rounded and, and deep? Jesus says, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. It took root. And they, to send relief to the Jews living in Judea? No, to the brothers they recognized the oneness that they had with this people so far off that they probably hadn't, met, hadn't seen in years and, and most of them had never met. The, the gospel was doing something strange in Antioch and people were noticing. Uh, Ray Ortland uh, says this, when it comes to the church's witness, apologetics can contribute to the advance of the gospel. God graciously wants to satisfy the questions of our minds. If you're here and that's you, We want to give you the right answers. But he says this too. But the beauty of human relationships in the church is itself an argument for the gospel. Just as a tender romance that endures for a lifetime is an argument for marriage when marriage is doubted. When the gospel is doubted, a beautiful church, let it be us, a beautiful church that sticks together is an unanswerable argument in our angry and divided world. And that, my friends, is exactly what happened in Antioch. So notorious were they that they earned a nickname. They earned a moniker. They earned a distinct group identity. And Luke goes on and shares that highlight that that they shared. They sent relief to the brothers. Remember, this church, here's the funny, God is hilarious. Did you know that? Okay, got a great sense of humor. Uh, This church exists because of the persecution that arose over Stephen, right? Remember that back in Acts 6? Stephen stands up and he's disputing. and, And they say, we're sick of you saying these things. And they stone him publicly. A public mob rises up and kills him. And who was sort of leading that persecution? Saul. Now here comes Saul down to Antioch, having been converted by Christ on the way to Damascus, training these people on what it looks like to be faithful in generosity as a Christian. And what do they turn around and do? They send their money up to Judea, to the community that Saul was overseeing, killing them. God has a funny way of working things out. <laughs> Amazing. This, this is the product of mission. This is the beautiful story that God is telling. And don't, don't think, ah, wasn't that nice? A nice historical artifact of what God did all those years ago. No, that's us here today. That's what we are, we are longing for God to do. We need this story. We need to be reminded by Acts 11 that what we are aspiring to here is not corporate niceness 
and all of us being a little bit better people than we were last week and sort of overall respectability, Parkview Church is meant to be an embassy of God's very own presence, a place where an alternate reality has broken into time and space so that people can see, while there's still time, that there is a different thing going on over here. A small slice of heaven has erupted into a dark place and you can get in on it. I'll say it again. Let's embrace God's power to make disciples. And so we begin at the end with the product of God's mission. But who does God use to do a work like this? Surely the most mighty among us. Spoiler alert, not so much. Uh, we begin, let's begin with Barnabas. Okay, we get, this is one of the unique things about this passage is we get these sort of pretty expansive descriptions of people and their character and what they were doing in the church. So it says about Barnabas in verse 22 again, the report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad and he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. For he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. And a great many people were added to the Lord. You'll notice much more is said about Barnabas' character than is said about his gifting. He's noted for his character and his heart. Uh, you notice these little details that they don't really need to be there. Do they advance the story, so to speak? They're given to us so that we can see them and imitate them and be like him uh, as he is like Christ. It says in verse 23, he saw the grace of God. He was glad. His, his heart rejoiced to see what God was doing. Uh, as so many of us, as we saw I'm Unique being baptized last week, our hearts were glad. I heard you cheering. You were making a great holy noise last week because you were glad because you saw the grace of God. So Barnabas, his emotions, his inward feeling, his, his affections and desires were transformed by Christ so that he was glad to see others progressing in the faith. Uh, some of you here feel like God will not be able to do very much with your life because you don't have the speaking and public and visible gifts of others that you have seen, particularly in our sort of celebrity-obsessed culture. Let Barnabas in Acts 11 be the reminder that God loves to do a lot with people who have strong faith, a glad heart, and a simple word of encouragement. Now, this isn't our first encounter with Barnabas in the book of Acts. Back in Acts 4, uh, we found out, you might remember, this is right before the incident with Ananias and Sapphira, and it was talking about how the, this community was, really, this wonderful community in Jerusalem, people were selling what they had and laying it at the, at the apostles' feet to be distributed to those who had need. And there's sort of one good example before the bad example, <laughs> and, and it's Joseph. his name is Joseph, it turns out, real name. Barnabas is his nickname. I don't know about you, not the nickname I would choose, but hey. Barney? I don't know. Um, but uh, Luke tells us Barnabas means son of encouragement. Son of encouragement. And that's the same word we see here. It says he exhorted them to remain steadfast. It's the same word that's used there in Acts 4 to mean encouragement. He encouraged them. If there's one gift that Barnabas was famous for, enough to earn a nickname, it was for his encouragement. The church in Antioch was, if, if it was built on one thing in a leader, outside of just the, the normal working of God's grace, it was the simple, humble, faithful, glad encouragement. Encouragement. We, we hear nothing about great speeches and great sermons. We hear nothing about incredible insights. What we hear about is Barnabas' simple, faithful encouragement. 
Now let me ask you, fake show of hands, anyone here feeling too encouraged this morning? A bit overappreciated? <laughs> Everyone back off, okay, because I'm already in the heavens. No, wrong. Uh, I, I was preparing this sermon on Thursday afternoon, and I was in my office, and uh, just feeling a bit down, just feeling a bit, and I think just sort of the normal sort of sermon prep woes and difficulties, just whatever. And Gary Kleinfelter, uh, you might know him as the guy who does the lawn and all that, all kind of making the outside beautiful. He passed by my office and he just said, hey, I, I meant to tell you this, and he mentioned a sermon from, I don't know, it must have been like four months ago, and he said, I was so helped by this one thing that you shared, and it was really meaningful to me. Wow, that got me right through that little dip in my mood to be able to do what I'm doing right now, sharing faithfully with you. So you guys can all thank Gary Kleinfelter because he was doing, he was being Barnabas to me. He was being the source of encouragement that I needed to get over the little hump of difficulty. We all need that. We need that. Uh, the example in Antioch and Barnabas tells us that we need that. When you go to another brother and sister in Christ or to someone who doesn't yet know Christ and you simply encourage them, even, even with very specifically Christian encouragement, to exhort them, to encourage them to continue in the faith, uh, to honor them by pointing out a way that, they, that you see God in them, working in them or through them, that is supernatural, meaningful work. This is, this is powerful work. This is what God does to make a church that did the kinds of things. Let's not forget Antioch. If you remember in the, in the New Testament letters, we would not have the book of Ephesians. We would not have uh, probably, we, basically half of Paul's letters in the New Testament are from the journeys that he was sent on by the church in Antioch. They were basically his missionary sending church. And God launched it and built it through the simple everyday encouragement of, of Barnabas's. So let's be like Barnabas. Now, the other thing we've got to notice, and this, was, this has been messing with me all week, by the way, is in verse 19. A simple phrase, maybe you passed right by it. I know I did. It says, Now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen, they traveled and so forth. Those who were scattered. Remember, this, the persecution, is not, it's not a bad Google review, okay? It's not that kind of persecution. It's Stephen killed with stones in an act of sort of mob injustice. Scattered. Now, hold on. What would you call it if the societal environment in your neighborhood, in your city, in your state, became so hostile to you personally because of what you believe that you realized if we don't leave town, we are in danger of our lives being taken? If, if that was your friend, what would, you, would you tell someone, hey, they were scattered? Uh, probably not. I think I would say something more like, they fled for their lives. They ran as fast as they could. They took whatever was at hand. They were terrified and they escaped. That'd probably be how I would describe it. And, and would the story, I just want to zero in on that, would the story be all that different if it basically started at, at verse 21 or so? W what's the significance of sharing that these are the people who ran away from Jerusalem? These are scared people. Luke doesn't exactly describe them that way. He doesn't emphasize their fear. But scatter, I mean, scattering is what I do with flour on my cutting board before I roll out a pizza. Scattering is what I do, better yet, 
is what I do with grass seed when I've got a bald patch on my lawn and I want to make sure I cover it all. I scatter the seed. It, it may have been persecution and fear that, that caused fearful fleeing, but apparently from, from Luke's perspective, led by God's Spirit, their fear turned them into the seeds that God would use to scatter across the world to lead to the fruit that, well, we are all here for, and half of our New Testament is here for because of it. Here's the point. Fear in these weak, meek disciples was no match for God's purposes. Some of you are here feeling like, I am too afraid to really be useful to the Lord. I am, I am basically disqualified, either because of some chance that I had in the past that I didn't make the most of, or because of just a, 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 something in your imagination, or some fear for a particular person in their opinion that makes you go, I'm, I could never open my mouth and say anything about Christ to my neighbors, or even to a Christian friend. Fear is no disqualification. Look at these fearful disciples setting the world on fire, not because uh, God has an incredible way of turning our fear into his fruit. And when I talk with people, this is borne out again and again and again in my experience, when I talk with people who are faithful to look for and capitalize on it, uh, opportunities, little relationships that they have, long-term friendships where opportunities crop up, whatever it happens to be, the pattern that I see is not that they are fearless people who know exactly what they're doing and exactly what to say in every situation. I've, I've seen it in action. It's that they are afraid. <laughs> they are afraid. They're fearful enough to become humble and weak and simply open their mouths and bring their fear to Jesus. Lord, help me. This is scary. But if you're with me, I can step forward. I see, in that, I see in that phrase, those who were scattered, and, and God's, it is God's tender kindness toward these brand new baby believers who flee. And if, if the big idea of the sermon, embrace God's mission, God's power to produce or, or to make whole disciples, if that in and of itself, you heard that and your blood pressure went up 60 points, because you said, Pastor, I know what's coming, it, because you sense in yourself sort of a profound sense of timidity or weakness and a bit of anxiety about this topic, I have good news. This passage is for you. You're right where you need to be because they were right where they needed to be. Today's story is about how fearful and sort of immature fleeing disciples become God's scattered seed to plant the most significant church in the New Testament. Wow. God is good. God is good. Now the last thing that we see, and obviously this is crucial, crucial, for any of these things to make sense. For us, we've seen um, the product of God's mission, this beautified lives, God's grace being manifested in individual transformed lives, but also in a community of transformed human beauty. We also see God using fearful people like these unnamed men of Cyprus and Cyrene and, and this humble, distinct encouragement from, from people like Barnabas. Finally, we have to see, we must see, crucially, the power that God gives for any of this to happen. And I'll point you to verse 21 in particular. And so these, these men of Cyprus and Cyrene, they come to Antioch and they're, they're preaching to the Hellenists, that is to Gentiles also preaching the Lord Jesus. And verse 21 says, And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. Now, we know Jesus has hands, but this is, a, this is an anthropomorphism. God isn't 
using his hands. His literal hand was not upon them. But a hand is sort of the ancient poetic way of describing someone's control. You've fallen into their hands. You are in the hand of so-and-so. Um, the control, this is what Luke is communicating, the control of this evangelistic missional outcome lied, it lay in God's hands. And the hand of the Lord, it's not just sort of some throwaway phrase, kind of a generic poetic idea. Uh, 38 times in the Bible, this exact phrase is used, and a few times in Acts itself, but the Old Testament reference that it's sort of hyperlinking to, uh, there are several I'll point out. 1 Samuel 5, 6, you guys can get a flavor of exactly what Luke is communicating to us about what was happening there. 1 Samuel 5, 6 says this, the hand of the Lord was heavy against the people of Ashdod, and he terrified and afflicted them with tumors, both Ashdod and its territory. This was the time when the people of Ashdod had captured the holy things of the Lord, the tabernacle and, and so forth, the Ark of the Covenant, and they had taken them into Ashdod, and God said, I will curse you if you hold on to this because it doesn't belong there. And the hand of the Lord apparently produced the bubonic plague. Joshua 4, 23 through 24, is a little more positive. <laughs> it says, For the Lord your God dried up the waters of the Jordan for you until you passed over, as the Lord your God did to the Red Sea, which he dried up for us until we passed over, so that all the peoples of the earth may know that the hand of the Lord is mighty, that you may fear the Lord your God forever. One more. Proverbs 21.1. The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. Do you see what's being said in Acts 11.21 when we learn that these unnamed fleeing fearful disciples came to Antioch and the hand of the Lord was with them. The same power that caused a plague to break out in Ashdod, the same power that divided the Red Sea and the Jordan River for the Israelites as they were fleeing, the same power that allows God somehow to direct world powers and world leaders to the pleasure of his will is the same power at work in the disciples when they move forward to share their faith and to build up God's church. We see God's power present, not in spite of their fear, but working somehow through their fear. God has something to do here. We saw it initially. Those who were scattered. Scattered by whom? By God. God was the one. He was working through that. In verse 24, we saw Barnabas' extraordinary capabilities and his character and heart. Why? Because he was full of God's Holy Spirit and faith. God's, the ongoing growth in this church was a result of God's empowering Spirit, the growth of those believers led to that incredible generosity, which we want to imitate too. And it was prompted by God's Spirit through his prophet coming down from Jerusalem. God's power is what drove God's mission. God's power was at work in their displacement, in their witness, in their spiritual growth. Let's be clear. The, the way that these fearful refugees became faithful, powerful evangelists was not through their courage and wit and worldly wisdom, or their personality and gifting, or their stubborn wills. There's nothing in the passage that would indicate that. It wasn't that they eventually felt guilty enough and shamed enough that they decided, okay, Lord, I guess, just to get you off my back, just to heal my conscience for once, I guess I'll... There's nothing in the passage to indicate that. What it tells us, what it emphasizes, is that God's power used their faithfulness in spite of their fear. Through their fear, the power God's gives, God gave them was not contingent upon their feelings or their history, their experience, their skills, or their maturity, although we want all of those things. And let me tell you, 
This has been true. I have seen this so many times. So many of you have too. I remember years ago when I was working in our college ministry, one of my coworkers who was, she was incredible at sort of sitting down with people and helping them, encouraging them. She was really a Barnabas in many ways. Um, but I know she was also, even though she, I wouldn't call her a really uh, outgoing, uh, extroverted person, she was also just a faithful, faithful to share Christ with, with people that she knew and, and people that she met. And I remember she asking her, how did you get that way? And she said, well, I remember the first time I decided I've got I've to do this. And I had this friend, I'd known her for a little bit, and she knew I was a Christian, and uh, I knew some, it was going to come up, and I wanted to make the most of it. And so she said, we had been taught to use the, the bridge illustration. We use Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Um, but she didn't use that one. She forgot. Uh, <laughs> And inconveniently, she, she went with Romans 3.23, um, which you might know is sort of just the bad news. It says, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So instead of writing the good news, Christ, she just wrote condemnation on the top of this page that she was supposed to make this illustration. She forgot. She put the wrong thing, wasn't able to do the whole thing, and just kind of, she, she shared about how her voice was just shaking. She was sort of fiddling with her Bible, just feeling kind of ashamed of herself at that moment. And she read the passage out loud, and as she read it, realized she had done the wrong one, and, and she was just ready for this person to just tell her to bug off. And instead, she looked up, and this girl, her eyes were starting to fill with tears. She said, that makes perfect sense. That's right, I have fallen short of the glory of God. <laughs> and she was cut to the heart, and she said, tell me more, what can I do? And she was able to then realize, I'm in the wrong part of the Bible. Went to Romans 6.23, she shared about Christ, and this, she was converted to Christ on the spot. Who knows? <laughs> I mean, I, there's, there's an author and pastor now in, out in Denver, J.T. English. Um, he came to Christ as a, a, as a college student. He recalls sitting down with a friend who, this friend of his, he found out later, had been sort of challenged to share the gospel and, and, and was just terrified um, they were sitting down at McDonald's, and his friend, he was like, what's wrong with you? He wouldn't even make eye contact with him. He was just sort of like, I don't, don't look at me, but I have to do this thing. Um, <laughs> my friend told me I have to. And he sat down, and he took out a little gospel tract, and as he's, he's just staring at his cheeseburger and just did not even want to look at him, and his hands are shaking, and he's clunky, and, and, and JT said, I don't know what it was, but God just interrupted my life at that moment, and I realized I'm going the wrong way. I need help. I need, and I asked my friend, help me figure this out. And my, my friend was like, are you serious? <laughs> After that? He said, yeah, I, I want to know what you're talking about. I could keep going and going and going. But the point is, I've heard enough of these stories to realize that so often our view of evangelism is all wrong. We need Acts 11:19 to correct our vision. We think that God's power comes when we are confident, well-trained, and fearless. But God seems much more interested in blessing simple, humble, even at times reluctant, fearful disciples who share Christ, therefore, with distinct humility. That there would be no doubt that it is God's power, not ours, that is at work. What if each of us believed, really believed, actually took to heart the fact that the hand of the Lord is with you, God's Spirit is with you. The same one, the same one that was there when the Red Sea was divided, the same one that caused those boils to break out, the same hand that empowered Solomon with wisdom and Samson with strength, the same hand that called the world into existence is with you 
is on you. And he's made his will clear. And he's made his plan clear. If you're anything like me, you know, evangelism is kind of like exercise. Like, I know I should be doing it. I know it's not a problem of knowledge. It's not, a, it's not the problem. I might need some training. I might need some help to, to be clear. I just need the motivation and will. I need a Barnabas to keep me encouraged, to keep me going in the right direction. And, and what I really need, and maybe I can play that role for you right now, is to ask you the simple question. What would step forward look like? What would a small step forward look like for you in this area? To embrace God's call to make disciples. Maybe for you it's just a matter of, of just bringing your heart before the Lord and saying, I, I know I need to do this, but it's hard for me. Help me, Lord. God loves to answer that. Maybe you need to bring your fear to God in a new way. Maybe, maybe there are sort of images and little things in your imagination, thoughts that have just kept you without even analyzing them, without even thinking about what they mean or if they're even anchored in reality, they've kept you from being bold. And you just need to bring them to the Lord and say, will you, will you take a look at this slideshow with me and tell me if this is just all baloney? Maybe you need to ask God to, to, to help you make a plan. Use wisdom to say, here's, here's a couple people that God, I think, has laid in, in my path and in my life um, with opportunities to share. Maybe you need a Barnabas. Uh, I know uh, I've, I've commissioned all of the community group leaders to be a Barnabas, uh, especially in this area, but in general, to help each person take the next step forward uh, toward Christ. So don't be surprised when your leaders are asking you, what would a next step forward look like for you in this area and as you help them as well? I'm not sure what a next step forward would look like for you, but I know this. God blesses our faithful obedience when we take the next step forward toward Christ and help others do the same. Often, not because we're courageous, but because we've come to him. Because in the end, it's God's power. Not our courage or cleverness. That's what, God, that's what moves things forward uh, to make whole disciples. So let's embrace God's power to make whole disciples.